Hello and welcome to NUPIS, the World Stage uh, podcast. My name is Karsten Fries, I'm your host today. And I'm very pleased to have to introduce our guest today, which is uh, Dr. Benedetta Berti, who is head of uh, policy planning unit at the Office of the Secretary General in NATO. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And welcome to Norway as well. Benedetta, before we start, because we're going to talk about the dramatic situation in the world, obviously, we have to explain to us what is NATO's policy planning unit and what's, what's your role there? Uh, fair enough. That's uh, that's a good question. We are uh, part of the office of the Secretary General uh, at NATO, and I would say I, I would say we serve a little bit of an internal think tank slash political advisor role. So we work uh, to provide the Secretary General with recommendations, analysis. We look at what's happening here and now, but we are also uh, we are also always trying to look at the future and forecast, predict, which is of course incredibly difficult in these uh, in these very volatile circumstances. So we offer advice, analysis, and uh, support the Secretary General decision making process at NATO. So how many people are you approximately? Aha, that's a secret. Oh, right. <laughs> and I'm right. joking. It's oh. a small unit because, of course, we are part of the Office of the Secretary General, which is a small part of the organization. Right. So you, you have a handful of management. Uh, you can manage them, so to speak. Yes. I try. <laughs> Excellent. Um, look, OK, let's let's go straight into the dramatic events of experience. We have war in Europe for the kind of first time since, since the Balkan Wars in the 90s and, and even more dramatic. Uh, Russia is attacking neighboring country, um, Ukraine. Um, what, what's, what's NATO's response? How, how does NATO and, and you perceive this, these events? Right. Uh, so first of all, uh, in terms of how, how does NATO perceive these events, I can say that all allies have been incredibly united in, in their uh, response to what is an unprovoked and uh, blatantly uh, blatant violation of the international rules-based international order. So there's been a clear uh, condemnation of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. There's been a clear uh, calls for solidarity with Ukraine, uh, supporting Ukraine's right to self-defense as enshrined in Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. So that's just to say that politically it's been very clear and it's not just NATO allies. I would say it's the whole international community has been standing very clear uh, in, condemning, uh, in condemning what is happening uh, right now in Ukraine. In terms of response, then I think uh, we have to look both at what NATO is doing, but also what allies are doing. And NATO working together with allies and working with the in entire international community has been, uh, first of all, talking about supporting uh, sanctions. That's something that individual allies through the European Union and in coordination with the United States, Canada, Norway, United Kingdom, have imposed a series of unprecedented sanctions against uh, the Russian Federation, and that's one of the responses of the international community. Then uh, NATO allies in different forms are providing bilateral assistance to Ukraine. NATO as an organization is not providing lethal assistance to Ukraine. NATO as an organization is coordinating uh, supporting the coordination of humanitarian efforts uh, and non-lethal uh, non assistance. 
so all of this is to say that the allies have supported and are supporting Ukraine's right to self-defense. Uh, although NATO directly is not providing lethal assistance, I continue to say that because it's, I think it's an important distinction. NATO itself is not a party to this conflict, nor does it want to be. Um, so that's one point. Then the second part of the answer would be more uh, what is NATO doing for allies, in other words, what are we doing to make sure we are able to fulfill our mandate to secure defense, uh, the defense and security of all allies? And here, I think you've heard a lot in the news about the fact that the alliance has been stepping up, reinforcing its posture. So what we see practically is more troops from all allies deployed in the eastern flank of our alliance, more ships, more planes. Uh, the alliance for the first time in its history has authorized the deployment of elements of the NATO response force in a collective defense scenario. Uh, plans, uh, plans have been approved to coordinate, uh, to coordinate further reinforcement of our eastern flank. So I think tangibly you can see we are stepping up our uh, deterrence and defense posture because we want to make it crystal clear uh, to Russia that NATO will defend every inch of a light territory and also make it crystal clear to Russia that there cannot be a spillover of this horrible conflict. Uh, and just finally, in terms of just to summarize all, all, our, all uh, our reactions, there's also a clear call, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, a clear call to Russia to immediately uh, halt uh, hostilities withdraw its troops and engage in good faith diplomacy because ultimately we will need a political solution. Mm. Uh, but that has to stop with Russia uh, immediately halting the aggression. Mm. So since you represent, uh, what do you call it yourself as a kind of the think tank within the, the Secretary General's office? I mean, if you, if you take a little bit longer term perspective, what, what does this situation mean for the for future European security? Where, where do you think we are heading here? I'll be very honest and I'll say I do not know where exactly we're heading, but what uh, what I do see is unfortunately, and the Secretary General uh, has been mentioning this expression a few times, this idea of a new normal. And I think that's a very, it's a useful concept to reflect uh, upon the changes in our security environment. Um, our last strategy written in 2010, the strategic concept talked about uh, the Euro-Atlantic era being a peace, he talked about the risk of conflict being low. He talked about uh, a security, a European security order predicated upon cooperation, mutual respect, shared principles, uh, a series of strong agreements on arms control. And if I take all of these elements and I look at the world today, I can say they have been eroded one by one. So no matter what comes in the future, and I don't know what will come, I would say we need to prepare for a world in which the risk of conflict is higher, the, the level of unpredictability is higher. Um, some, of the, some of the elements that we had built painfully over the past decades to ensure stability, uh, to improve, to lessen the chances of conflict have been eroded. If we look at especially Russia's conduct since 2014 in terms of arms control, um, we see one after one all those guarantees having been uh, questioned. So I think I see m a much more uncertain world in which it will be even more important for allies to, to work together and to invest in defense. And of course, I would say this is also not the only trend at play. 
I mean, the, the future of European security is, of course, affected by what is, happen but what is happening right now in Ukraine. But there's also larger geopolitical shifts in the global balance of power and the distribution of power connected with the rise of China. There's also other elements that are contributing to change our security environment in a way that uh, I think would be fundamentally different in the decades to come. Mm -hmm. you, you already mentioned the NATO strategic uh, concept. Um, and I understand your office has a key role in, 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 in drafting the new one, which is supposed to be uh, agreed upon at the Madrid summit this summer. Um, now, can you say a little bit more about what is a strategic concept? Is it just a document or why is it important? Sure. So th this is very simply is, I would say it's the alliance uh, strategy. Uh, in other words, we have as NATO a North Atlantic Treaty, which basically set the alliance up. It defines what NATO is, what our uh, responsibilities of members, and that's really our founding treaty. One step below that founding treaty, we have the strategic concept. That defines, that basically uh, is an opportunity for all the allies to come together to agree on how do they see the strategic environment, what do they, what do they see as the main threats, the main challenges, the main opportunities, what do they think NATO should do about it? That's always a very important question and how to prioritize. So ultimately, it gives us guidance in terms of our military and political adaptation. So it is a document, but it's a document that uh, has real world implications because it sets our a strategic direction for the decade to come. And Right, and I remember in the in the existing one from 2010, NATO has, is described as having three core tasks. Can you just briefly tell us what they, they are? And, and because they, as I understand, they will remain the three core tasks. Well, at least that's what we'll see what the politicians decide. But as, it, as I understand right now, that is where it stands. What are they? Yes. So in 2010, uh, and this, by just as a context, was the seventh strategic concept since NATO was founded in 1949, and that was our last strategic concept. So in 2010, the concept says NATO needs to do three things fundamentally to fulfill its mission. First, it needs to take care of deterrence and defense slash collective defense. Uh, which, of course, is the bread and butter of the alliance and also the, the expression collective defense is uh, mentioned in our treaty. Uh, but in 2010, he also says there are other two functions that the alliance needs to fulfill in order to be fit for purpose. Uh, the second function is crisis management. So to be able to deploy and utilize both military and non-military tools to contribute to prevent, manage, and respond to crisis, including outside of the alliance border, when these have uh, the potential to affect our security. And thirdly, uh, the third function is cooperative security, which is somewhat mysterious in the way it's phrased, but what it means is promoting security through international cooperation. So a lot of it is about working with our partners. Uh, as you rightly mentioned, the negotiations for the new strategic concept have not started yet, so I, cannot, I do not know what, uh, what outcome those negotiations will bring. But uh, if I just very personally look at NATO today, I, I would argue that all of these three functions remain important in a world that is more uh, complex and interconnected. We will still need to invest in our partnerships and in cooperation and promoting security through cooperation. We will still need to retain the ability to respond to crisis when these have the, 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 when these have the potential to affect our security. And of course, 
and I think the current crisis demonstrates it very well, we will need to redouble our efforts when it comes to our ability to uh, to engage in territorial defense, to engage in collective defense and protect the security uh, of all allies. So I think, yeah, largely these three functions remain valid. We will see how we adapt it. Right. And obviously, as I said, the collective defense, I mean, nobody should doubt the necessity of that. And you said it's the bread and butter of the, of the uh, alliance. Um, but is it a danger now that we become so focused on this, uh, that we, because of the current warfare in, in, in Ukraine, that we kind of forget about other things? Could you perhaps mention for us uh, what are the other topics that have been, been discussed that are of importance for NATO's, NATO? Sure, and I think that's a very important question because uh, we are in a very complex security environment and we simply do not have the luxury to focus on only one theater or one contingency. So I think that's very important. Um, and to be to be fair, the alliance military and political adaptation over the past decade has really gone in this direction. So as you rightly say, the, the, the tragedy and the crisis in Ukraine shows us the importance of uh, the more conventional aspects of collective defense, and that remains incredibly important for the alliance. But at the same time, we're not going to forget that our security environment is increasingly more hybrid. So we also need to be able to defend and deter against a series of uh, contingencies, so quote-unquote, below the threshold of armed conflict. And that's not something that's going to go away. If anything, it's going to intensify uh, in a world of growing strategic competition. So we need to continue uh, to build our skill sets uh, when it comes to cyber defense and cyber security. We need to, con we need to do uh, more reflection and work closer as allies to improve our resilience. We need to invest in our technological uh, innovation because that's going to be a key enabler of our ability to defend all allies. So all of these issues remain incredibly important to us and they've not taken a back seat as we adapt uh, our conventional defense and defense conventional deterrence and defense posture, we need to continue to do all of these things. We also cannot forget that our neighborhood is um, characterized by pervasive instability, that terrorism remains a direct threat to our citizens, and that we have to deal more and more also with new non-traditional challenges like uh, the security impact of climate change. So this is not a NATO that forgets about the rest, it's more uh, back to our core, but uh, but at the same time with an attention to the global uh, threats and trends that are going to affect our security. One one aspect that we haven't mentioned yet, which has been debated a lot, is China. Why should why does NATO need to mention China in these documents? So I would argue that if. NATO, but not just NATO, any organization wants to write a strategy that looks to the future and describes how is our security environment going to change. I don't think you can do that without addressing the rise of China. Um, if you look, uh, if you look at ha ahead, 10 years, but also five years ahead, uh, or whatever time frame you choose, you can see that there is a shift in the global balance of power. Uh, we, we can look at all types of indicators from military might to global GDP to population. Uh, the world is changing. Uh, a big factor, a big element of that change is China's increasingly assertive 
role on the world stage. And there's simply no way we can think about our future without thinking about the impact of these trends on our security. Again, this does not mean NATO is going out of area, is going to China. But as the, the Secretary General often says, China is coming to us. It's investing in our critical infrastructure. It has uh, interest in our neighborhood. And it, it would be uh, remiss uh, for a strategy not to look at how this, uh, these issues affect directly our security. And, and, uh, and the related question is, what type of convergence do we need to forge amongst allies in responding to the security impact of the rise of China? And, and I think these are the questions uh, for the strategic concept to address. Mm. You also mentioned climate change, which obviously is, is a, is a uh, you know, a, and, and more very serious, very serious challenge uh, for all of us. We don't, but we don't know exactly how it will play out, so to speak, and also in security terms. So, so how is this being discussed for in, in the NATO context? So uh, in the NATO context, I would say that over the last uh, year, we have done a lot. Uh, we have we progressed a lot when it comes to the issue of the security impact of climate change. Uh, first of all, we have agreed a strategy. And just to, to sum it up, it says climate change is a defining challenge. It has direct and indirect impact on our security. It is a crisis multiplier. And as an alliance focused on security and defense, we cannot afford to ignore the security impact of climate change. So because of that, of course, NATO is never going to be the first responder. It's not our job. But uh, climate change is affecting our security in ways we simply have to take into consideration. So what we're doing is increasing our awareness, which means looking at how climate change can affect our missions, our operations, our security, um, and, and really taking into account uh, mainstream in it, I would say, across everything we do. Two, we need to adapt, and that's very important. Uh, our armed forces will need to operate differently when they, when, when, because they're going to operate in wilder, wetter, hotter, drier climates. So that implies that we need to adapt uh, the way our armed forces operate. And also our armed forces will be called... Uh, it's likely they will be called more and more to support civilian efforts when it comes to disaster relief, humanitarian responses. And that's also something we need to account for and, and, and leads, for example, to, to having us to think more about civil military coordination when it comes to relief uh, assistance. So there's a number of very practical questions that we are addressing and we need to address when it comes to the impact of climate change on security, inclu including increasing the resilience of our own facilities, bases and installations. So all of this is really at the core of what NATO is doing. But the last the last element, which I think is also important, is mitigation, because we, uh, as an alliance, uh, believe that this, that everybody has a responsibility to do something when it comes to climate change, and that does include our armed forces and our security sector. So we're also working on how to increase our efficiency, uh, continue to green our militaries, reduce emissions. So the mitigation agenda is core to our uh, to our, to how we approach the to how we approach climate change. Mm. I would like to, to end our conversation with a few couple of questions from, on the part of Europe we are in right now in Northern Europe. Uh, so first, our, our great partners, uh, Sweden and Finland. Um, they have been the closest partners there is. Uh, can they get any closer without becoming members? <laughs> uh, 
so uh, first of all, I, ag- I agree with you. Uh, Sweden and Finland have, all, have been two of NATO's closest partners in terms of exercising, working together, um, decision shaping, uh, pro- providing uh, contributions to NATO's missions and operations. So there is a very long standing and very strong uh, partnership right there. Um, as you know, because of the crisis in Ukraine, Finland and Sweden have uh, asked NATO to activate a series of measures so that we are even clo- in closer coordination at the moment in terms of uh, in terms of sharing intelligence, sharing the information, uh, consulting together, and being really uh, in sync every step of the crisis. That's where we are at the moment. Uh, Anything, anything else, anything, I would say that this makes them very, very close partners. Of course, there is in, in the alliance a difference, as you know very well, between allies and partner. And there is a fundamental difference when it comes to, col- when it comes to Article 5. But that said, these are incredibly close partners. Anything that would, uh, that would uh, it would then be for Sweden or Finland or Sweden and Finland in the future to freely decide their foreign policy if they were and 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 if they were to decide to to want to change that type of partnership with NATO. But that's not for me to speculate because it's their sovereign decision to do so. That's what this whole conflict is about, isn't it? That's with part Russia. of it. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. every country has the right to choose uh, to choose their alliances and to freely conduct their foreign policy free from interference, and that's what we have. Uh, firmly believe it held uh, since the since the foundation of NATO. Great. Now, uh, let me then uh, conclude with a question. Since we are in Norway, the high north, Arctic, um, that's a part of NATO that uh, back in the 1990s, this, this is a horror story from Norwegian diplomats, because there was a map in the, in the, in the main hall in, in NATO headquarters, and they had cut the Europe in, 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 in on, by the top half of Norway. So like the whole northern part was kind of taken away from the map of NATO. So that was that's like the, the, the worst uh, horror story from a Norwegian diplomat. <laughs> and that map was removed, I was told, and, and it was replaced with the one that also included the, the, the high north. How, how does NATO look at the high north today? So I think that... I think that different allies may have slightly different framing in terms of what's NATO role supposed to be in the INORT. So I'll, I'll park that for a second. But in terms of the assessment, I think I can I can pretty um, uncontroversially say that there is a shared understanding that the High North um, plays an, in, an increasingly more important role to our defense and security. There's definitely uh, uh, there's definitely a sense that uh, the impact of climate change is going to be particularly acute in the high north, and that's also going to have uh, ramifications, direct implication for for our security. Uh, there is, of course, a, an analysis of how strategic competition is playing out in the high north, and we see that as being a, an area of the world in which. Um, the traditional uh, approach of high north, low tensions continues to hold. But of course, it's important to think about how uh, with a more uh, increasingly assertive uh, China on the war stage and a more aggressive Russia, how these developments are going to play out in the high north. So that's more than a fact. It's a question that we need to uh, take into consideration when we look at the developments of the region. 
Of course, uh, we have seen over the last years uh, increased militarization from Russia's side of the I North. Um, so there are a number of factors that I think the alliance needs to continue to monitor, and that's very much, uh, very much on our radar. In terms of uh, in terms of how does this affect our defense and 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 deterrence posture? Of course, as NATO, we have a what we call a 360 degree approach, which means that we really look at how to defend and deter across the light territory. And so that spans from. Uh, from the Barents to the Baltic Sea and from the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. So, of course, we need to take this region into consideration when we look at our security landscape. Great, thank you. Um, Dr. Benedetta Berti, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. And uh, good luck with the strategic concept. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much.